Hi everyone and welcome to episode 19 of Her Story. In this episode I am talking with Sarah Morrow. Sarah is a music educator in a rural school district in Connecticut. She teaches general music, chorus, and band at her school and her and I we discuss her career, her experiences with composition and as a composer and we also discuss some of the equity issues that occur in education at both the urban and the rural level. So I'm really excited for you to hear what she has to say. She has some wonderful wonderful ideas for you teachers out there if you want to create a more equitable and a more inclusive classroom for all of your students, including your special ed kids. So I hope you enjoy and please let us know if you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share it with your friends and make sure you are following and liking all of our content on social media. Thanks so much. Hi, my name is Sarah Morrow, and I live in northwestern Connecticut in Litchfield County, and I have been a band director, a classroom music teacher, and a chorus director for six going on seven years at a very rural school district in northwest Connecticut. I guess my first memories of a musical life would have been all the classical music that my father introduced me to. He was always playing Gershwin and Grieg and Mozart. And there's this home video of me when I'm two years old dancing to Mozart's, I don't even know what symphony it is. That's so embarrassing. But he asks me, who wrote this? Who is this? And I go, Mozart. And of course, that was a trained response. But Music was always a really big part of my life, but I really credit my father for, for playing all sorts of diverse classical music, but also different movie soundtracks like Lonesome Dove, which is really random, but it's something that he played a lot, old TV tunes. Um, so he really got me to appreciate that kind of music. But when I was in elementary school, of course, I started doing band because everyone did band in fourth grade and I chose the clarinet. And from there, I just, I just, kept with it for, for all through grade school. And then college was really when I started exploring other musical aspects that I could participate in. What point did you know you wanted to be a music teacher? So I, I didn't know I wanted to be a music teacher until probably about six years ago when I, when I got my first teaching job. When I applied to colleges, I was actually applying to be a creative writing major. That was really where I stood out in high school. I was always very shy and quiet, but when I presented my writing pieces, they were funny and I could really connect to my classmates. So I thought, oh my gosh, I'm good at this. I want to do this in college. So I applied early decision to Mount Holyoke. I got in, but around that time, so this is about uh, halfway through my senior year of high school, I was taking a music theory class and I realized that um, I didn't just enjoy playing in band, but I was really good at music theory. I had a good ear. I was good at dictation and I changed my mind. So I guess you could say that I knew I wanted to do music in high school, but being a teacher came much later um, after I had already had some experience doing private lessons, that is teaching private lessons, being a camp counselor, and doing a TA position at my graduate school, UMass Amherst. There are lots of teachers in my family, so I feel like I was kind of destined for this, mm -hmm. but I didn't, I, I don't have an education degree. I went back and got certified after I got my master's, so uh, it was really, really pretty late into my 
life, I guess, comparatively, that I decided I want to teach. That's so interesting. You just had you just had a different path. That's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you started going to an all women's undergraduate school, yeah. and then you went to major in composition at the graduate level. So can you talk a little bit about both of those experiences and what those differences were like for you from going to this one school to a school that's completely different? Yeah. So the fact that Holyoke is a women's college wasn't necessarily what appealed most to me about it. I feel like if I had been a little more, I mean, I was mature. I was always a mature person, but I think if I had been, had a little more foresight when I was 17, 18, I might've even chosen a different school if I had known I wanted to be a music major. When I got there, I mean, just the environment was so perfect for me. I decided to declare a music major and I actually, I wanted to self-design it. So I went to my advisor and asked if I could self-design a composition major that focused less on performing. I really didn't consider myself a performer. I didn't like it. I, I had played clarinet. I had done some singing in high school musicals, but I didn't enjoy it. I didn't think I was that good at it. And I do, I had a lot of performance anxiety. So I didn't personally want that much performance involved in my major. Mm -hmm. In the end, I did not end up designing a composition major because they were really, the department was adamant about if you're, if you're going to be a musician, no matter what you do, you really need to have a strong performance background, which ended up being fine. I took voice lessons for a year and a half. I learned a lot. I, I mean, I've always enjoyed singing, but learning more about the technical aspects was great as well. And I felt very supported by my my second advisor, who was a composer. Um, so once I really got into the program and into the major, I switched and um, I had a composer as my advisor who really helped me find my voice and encouraged me to do writing for different instrumentations. Mount Holyoke is more of a STEM school. STEM majors are very popular there. A lot of pre-med students go there. So it's not a particularly strong or known school for the arts. We have strong programs, but I would say that if, if I had known going in that I wanted to be a music major, like I said, I, I may have actually chosen a different school, although I had a great education there. Going to UMass Amherst for my master's, I was the only woman in the master's program for those two years. There were undergrad females who were taking classes with me, but I was the only female in the composition program, which was a very big environmental difference just being among all women at Mount Holyoke and, and then going into this environment at UMass surrounded by a lot of guys, I really felt like I had to prove myself worthy of being there. And mm -hmm. that might've been exacerbated by the fact that I, I really only applied to three graduate schools and I got into one, which kind of made me doubt, am I supposed to, am I supposed to be a composer? Am I good at this? What did I, what did I do wrong? But I love Massachusetts and I love being in the Pioneer Valley, so it all worked out. But being in that program, I felt definitely like I had to prove myself that I wasn't worthy of being there the whole time and that my particular compositional style, which is definitely tonal, <laughs> <laughs> definitely tonal, was very out of place among all the experimental styles of my colleagues. Yeah, yeah. I can see why that would be an environment that you didn't feel like you could fully thrive in at first, for sure. Yeah. And the fact that my advisor there also didn't write in the style that I did, I felt as though it was harder to relate to him. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I guess it's a little too bad. Just some of my, my memories of being at UMass 
um, not being in class, but just being out of class and on campus, occasionally I would see cohorts of my colleagues, you know, my fellow composition major majors together out at lunch or out with professors. And these are majority men, if not all men. And I felt like I wasn't really part of that group. I was always an outsider. We were all friendly and certainly on a first name basis and we knew each other really well, but I would definitely feel seeing these, these colleague meetings out and about like, oh, I wonder if I was considered or I wonder how I can get closer to these people without, without needing to prove myself. Were you able to find support systems or women in music that are composers to look up to while you were there at school? Or was it hard just because you felt so isolated? It was definitely hard. My closest friends there were not in the composition department. There were a few undergrads that I ended up becoming friends with and a few I still keep in touch with from Mount Holyoke and from UMass as well. But in general, no. Um, I really, I just, I found it hard to relate to the people, but also stylistically. Again, we were so different. I felt like my writing style wasn't legitimate. It was more, I actually, in, um, in undergrad at Mount Holyoke, we had the Finnish composer Kaya Seriaho come and do a clinic with a bunch of us, including me. And she, uh, I played rather one of my pieces. It was originally, it's called Glances, and it was originally for piano, but I had rearranged it for instruments that were available that day. And she heard it and she said it would be wonderful in some film. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I'm going for. But then she also said, just remember, you're writing tonal music make sure you're not writing it out of ignorance or innocence. Make sure you're making a conscious choice. So coming from such an esteemed composer, I, I really, I took that to heart, but also that just made me second guess again, is my style legitimate? Is, is this something people are doing anymore? I'm following my heart, but is that even enough? In short, no. <laughs> um, I didn't yeah. have a lot of women to look up to. I think one of the biggest issues in our profession as a whole is the lack of women going into composition at the collegiate level Mm -hmm. and succeeding at the professional level in composition. And I know you are a music educator now, but what do you think are some of the reasons why women may not be pursuing that major or may be discouraged? Yeah, I feel like I personally fell into composition by chance. My father had given me notational software for my 14th birthday. I think it was Noteworthy Composer. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, but I I got that for my birthday and I I just took off with it. And it was it was just, you know, a, a a random like present for me. Just he thought it would be fun. But I ended up really obviously getting into it. And when my high school band director found out that I was composing on the side, he said, Okay, well you can enter student composition festivals at the state level. And I did that, I think, for at least two, I want to say three years. So I had works performed, but because it was because of that support, but I happened upon the, the composition by chance. So I think providing, up, providing meaningful, purposeful opportunities for young people to write will let them know that this is something that is for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not just something that's academic or elite that you can only do when you're in college or if you're educated enough. It really is, I think, about providing opportunities for 
young people to explore not just composition and writing, but conducting and music technology, these things that exist that should be available to students from very young ages. Mm -hmm. Completely agree with that. And you are now a music teacher in Connecticut in a rural school district. And Mm -hmm. you told me you teach general music, band and chorus, which (laughs) a lot of people might be like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. But it's actually pretty common in rural school districts for you to take on multiple roles. So my question for you is, what is your job like in that regard? Like if we were to walk through your day-to-day life, what does that look like? And what are your students like? I'm at a, a one of six elementary schools in the in the school district. So yes, most of the teachers in that district are doing multiple, um, if not multiple grade levels, then multiple subject areas. And the certification in Connecticut and many states, I believe, is music pre-K through grade 12, mm-hmm. every subject, including strings. So technically I'm certified in strings, which yep. I would not feel comfortable teaching at all. Don't worry, uh, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah, not can't do that, but it's on my, on my license. But day-to-day, so my school is pre-K through eight. I only teach grades three through eight. There is a separate younger younger student teacher. So from day-to-day, it's really quite, I bounce back and forth. So it might be classroom music, then two lessons, then an ensemble, then more classroom music, a few lessons, lunch, recess duty, ensemble. It's very jumbled, but that's also because in the school district, you have to sort of combine an elementary schedule with a middle school schedule. And teachers like me, like specialists, are following both. Mm-hmm. So it depends where, you know, depends where every grade's lunch is. So every year I've been there, which is six years now, the schedule has been different. You know, I can't necessarily count on ensemble being first or last. It's, it's just somewhere. And even grade or elementary school grades used to be in the morning and now they're in the afternoon, which I find harder because they are tired and they want to go home. So really it's quite random and it's, it's tricky because there's not, there's virtually no passing time. So I have to be ready to go for the next class. That can be a tricky and a little stressful. My students mm-hmm. are wonderful. It's a small school. We've got definitely under 300. I want to say around 260. My average class size is 11 or 12 and there are about two wow. sections per grade. So I'll see two sections of third grade or two sections of sixth grade. Um, every however many days are in the schedule rotation, you know, four, five, six, whatever it happens to be. We have varying socioeconomic status families. We have a lot of Spanish speaking students and families. We've got a wide range of academic abilities. I have several special needs students. So it really just runs the gamut. There are all, all varieties and they're all wonderful. I miss them so much when we left in mid-March to go home for the rest yeah. of the year. <laughs> But they're, they're wonderful. They love to learn. And since being there, I've really been trying to build the ensemble program. So I want to say most of them go into band. And then you get the typical dropouts, which is, I think, pretty standard in most, in most cases. But I have great relationships with them. They're really fun to, to get to know and work with. And I enjoy seeing them. And I've missed them so much. <laughs> yeah, I miss my kids, too. It's literally the worst. Yeah. <laughs> I guess one of the biggest things that I wanted to talk to you about was this idea of equity, because a lot of people associate, when we're talking about equity with education, we often think first of urban school districts. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So like I teach, for example, in a Title I school district that is, if you look it up, technically a suburb, but it is, my school is definitely leaning more towards the urban realm than the suburban realm. So a lot of people gravitate towards urban education when they think about equity issues. But there are a lot of equity issues that also exist in rural school districts as well. Mm-hmm. So can you elaborate a little bit about some of the equity work that you're doing in your school district? I guess the first thing that comes to mind is making sure that I'm advocating for a schedule that lets every student in the building access every possible music opportunity without any kind of obstacle. And that Mm. includes polls for special ed or speech and language, which is vital, but also it's part of the federal law, ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, which I feel a lot of people don't know exists. I think since 2015, when Obama signed it into law, it says that all students deserve a well-rounded education. It gets rid of the core four language. So when people talk about core classes, to me, that means everything because it's all part of a well-rounded student education and legally that's what it means, but it's still, it's, that language is still pervasive core subject areas or academic teachers. And I'm thinking- Oh, just my blood is boiling thinking, gee, you know, I have a master's in music. What is, I think that's academic. Like I defended a thesis, I defended a portfolio, but you know, that's, can't pick your battles, I guess. But so it's about making sure the schedule is conducive to providing students access to all musical and artistic opportunities without any obstacles. I also think it's about changing language, which happens from kindergarten, if you talk about music being extra or uh, the term specialist is used a lot, which I don't really have a problem with. I, I, I do specialize, but when you have those, like this sort of binary, it's either academic or it's a special. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about that, but change it, changing the language, making sure that we're not talking about the arts as being, being that sort of extra or being a privilege. For me, I really advocate for not just equal, equal access for all students, but just the way the schedule is set up in my school in particular, a lot of times ensemble is up against, it's not quite a study hall, but it's more of a free form period. So I always get the, I need to make up a test. I need to make up a project. I have to do this. I need to skip ensemble today. And I have fought so hard to make sure that doesn't happen. But because I'm the only teacher, the only music teacher generally, you know, I have to choose where to be. Do I stop class and make a phone call to get kids to come down to me? Or do I proceed with the rehearsal, even though I'm missing a third of my group, which is still only about three or four kids, but you know, missing the whole low brass section is a problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so changing language, making sure things are accessible. And somehow I think illuminating the process behind the product, I think it's very easy for us to think that music is about the concert. And you could say the same thing with art is about the art show or PE is about the basketball game. But the product or rather the process behind that is really where so much of the learning takes place. And that's so hard to see if you're not there in the room where it happens, (laughs) to quote Hamilton. If you're not there, all you're seeing is the output, which I think to a lot of people can look fun and easy. And, oh, I wish I could have that job. Wow, I would love to sing and play with kids all day. 
yeah, but that's only the tip of the iceberg. So a big challenge for me has been making sure that it's clear that we are working hard to build not just musical skills, but interpersonal skills and empathy and how to take healthy risks and being compassionate. It's hard to make that visible. That's probably been the biggest thing. But when I think when my colleagues and colleagues everywhere, teachers everywhere can understand more that the process is really where the learning takes place. I think we can build a little more empathy there just regarding how the arts are treated in public schools and in just American culture too. Oh yeah, I completely agree. And while you were saying, while you were talking about all these important things that you're considering in your classroom, I was, I was mentally taking some notes and some points that I want to delve into a little bit more because I think what you said was wonderful. When you were starting with the academic versus extracurricular argument, I think that that issue with the sort of labeling music as a specials class, that language is very much apparent, especially at the elementary level, because Mm -hmm. we, you know, we've been using that language for so long, it becomes habitual with a lot of general teachers. And then when you get into the secondary level, which is where I teach, I teach seven through 12 band, Mm -hmm. we often use the language of the core classes versus the classes that are not the core classes. And I'm sitting here going, um, I'm a New York state teacher and it is state mandated that every student has a music class before they graduate. So I'm a core class too. I'm literally required. Mm -hmm. And so I think I completely agree with you changing that language and having more communication and a relationship with general ed teachers is what's going to be the forefront of changing that language because we as music people and as as allies we all understand that hey we're important too right like we're in this subject together but it's going to take us having those relationships with the general education teachers and advocating for ourselves and making them realize, oh yeah, you know, music's important too. And those are the people that are going to be able to change that language. Definitely. And that I think links back to the schedule where I don't just want it to be good for students. I also want it to be good for me. For example, when certain subject areas have their PLCs or when there's a team meeting, I find that either I can't attend because the PLCs or the 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 learned like the the team meetings basically are during my classes which is hard to avoid because i have classes throughout the day but or meetings before school with the team so the middle school team are during my duty time so i Mm -hmm. feel like that's a really no it's like a no-brainer to me you need to make common meeting time accessible to all the teachers on that team too yeah i'm left out of important conversations and then it's easy to forget about me and the subject area and the students there, just even being present. I mean, that that just seems like a no-brainer to me. And I think one of the, the biggest issues being a elementary-focused music teacher is that if you are the only music teacher in your building, that can be very isolating because not only do you not have a direct relationship with other music teachers, access to them all the time, like you would if, for example, in my building, we have like four or five music teachers. So we have our own little camaraderie there. But I also feel like when things happen like that to you, where they're organizing meetings during times where you have other duties, that also further ostracizes you from the rest of that community and building those relationships with those teachers. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And like you said, we're all teachers. We all have the same qualifications. It's just our subject area is different. 
So I deserve to be in this room. And just, I've had a hard time advocating for myself because I came to teaching. I was 26 when I started teaching. So, you know, a, a teacher who began at 22 would have been like four years in by now, but I was brand new and I wasn't really sure how to advocate for myself. I was in this new school district and I'm still working on that. But even the, the mentality of you deserve to be in that room. You deserve to be at that meeting. You deserve to ask questions and get answers and advocate for your students because they're not even just my students. We're all teaching the same students. Yeah. So what I want that's good for them is, is good for them everywhere. Yeah. You talked about making things accessible for your mm-hmm. students and you were talking about your special, your special needs kids in your music classes. So what sort of things do you do for your special ed kids in your classes to make things more accessible and more adaptable for them in the classroom? I have a ton of manipulatives. Most of them I've made myself. And I I really thank a lot of the Facebook groups that I'm a part of where I've gotten all these tips for how you you can make your own music manipulative. So I have things like those those Easter eggs where you can split them in half. And on each half, I'll have a different note value or a different note name. So anything that can be held, anything that's particularly tactile. We've also, as a school district, we invest in modified equipment. So certain instruments like recorders that I have will be adaptive for special needs students. I like to make sure that whenever I'm taking video or photographs that every single person is included as long as it's, you know, the the privacy, the sharing privileges have been given by the parents. I do a lot of mixed groupings too. So a lot of the times I will pull in students just of varying abilities into grouping. I've gone back and forth with that. I'm like, should I, should I have students pick groups? You know, then what happens? But I think sort of mixing skill level. So you kind of have like a peer mentor thing going on in the group there is important. I've invited some special needs students who who can't participate in band or chorus for whatever reason to come and at least watch rehearsals or watch lessons. Paras have really taken advantage of that, which I think is great. Let's see. So a lot of the times some of my special needs students will get frustrated with an instrument like trumpet or clarinet, but percussion is more their speed. So I really try to pull them in to percussion because I feel like that's a more kind of, I can give them very strong visual cues and then they can be a part of the group too. It's not just you have to be able to read music and you have to be able to sit still and concentrate. I try to make it so that in whatever supports they need to be successful, I can, I can give them. And I think that's so great that you're including special ed kids in your band because I feel like a lot of music teachers are afraid to include special ed kids in their musical ensembles. They kind of just stick them to the general music classes and they kind of try to find ways to adapt in that way. But I think it's so great that you're doing that and you're finding ways to make things accessible for kids. Thanks. And that that kind of reminds me, um, kind of leads to the idea of notation and reading and how I feel like at a certain point, you know, I guess by fifth or sixth grade, if a student isn't in band, they don't know how to read music. Mm-hmm. And I go back and forth between it's something that every student, you know, graduating eighth grade should have had experience with and should know what to do. They should be able to read the notes on the treble and the bass clef. They should be able to understand basic note values. And then I also think, okay, but why? I mean, our traditional notation system is so old. <laughs> and yeah. for students who maybe need to write note names in, which I know is a big no for a lot of teachers, 
I, I kind of equate that to, well, if, if a student, like an ELL student needs pullouts to go and work on vocabulary or speech therapy to help them learn this new language or how to read in this new language, what kind of supports can I offer with traditional music notation to help students read better? Mm. And are note names a crutch or are they a support that will eventually be taken away or things like color coding? I do a lot of experimenting with this in recorder, which we do in fourth grade in my school because I find this third grade just in general, not quite ready. <laughs> and because we start band in fifth grade, I like to have recorder in fourth grade. So yeah. I try all kinds of different types of notation with the goal eventually of students being able to read without writing note names in basic, you know, like quarter notes, eighth notes, half notes, whole notes. But in the meantime, how can notation be altered so that students don't feel like they fail before they've even started because it's a whole new language system. Yeah. And I think traditional music classrooms, like the traditional way ensembles have been run for decades and decades and decades and those sorts of things. I feel like they were designed for the privileged student body. So that means people that come from socioeconomically more privileged areas, students that have had a good music education from the very beginning in kindergarten. And for every student, that's just not the case right? Some kids don't have the capacity right away to be reading notation and those things. And I don't think that, I I know there will be older music educators that would get offended by something like that, like writing in note names or color coding or those things, like you said. But if we really want our goal to be for every student to experience music in their life and to have it be a part of their life, we need to be able to make music education adaptable for every student. Mm -hmm. Because what you're asking for is something that won't be achievable if we try to do it the same way for every single student. That's just not the case. And we try to push this whole individualized instruction and all those goals for every student. And we're not doing that if we're teaching every student the same way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I completely agree. You know, when I'm, when I'm looking for new band or chorus music for my ensembles, it's tricky because we're so small and frequently we're missing big groups of instruments. So in my middle school band right now, it's about 13 or 14 kids, four are percussion, you know, two are flutes. Um, it just, it's not, it's, it's, I mean, it's balanced enough, I guess, but just, we're not very big. You know, we don't have any alto saxophones. And so I'm constantly rewriting parts for people to cover all of the the lines that are going through the piece. But also I'm thinking, okay, well, where's the music for groups like mine that, exactly the right instrumentation it's just it's very i mean i'm sure there are lots of traditional bands out there but there are so many bands like mine too that are small and you know we're not we're not going to be earning big trophies and things first of all we don't often go that isn't even that important to me it's are students learning and are they becoming better musicians are they becoming more secure in themselves are they making goals and following them are they being good teammates are they learning how to communicate well Where's, where's the music that, that I, you know, I don't have to constantly modify. Yeah. And I think you brought up just such a brilliant point about the modifying the music for a smaller ensemble, because again, that equity piece, Mm -hmm. 
with a rural school district, people often forget about, hey, there's equity issues there and your ensembles may not be super big. And you may have, again, like you said, like 11 or 12 kids. And so we always go to focusing on the urban lens, which is great. Everybody should be focusing on that. Like I'm a huge proponent of that, but we should also be focusing on our rural schools and making sure that there is band music out there that is adaptable for those small ensembles. And I know there are increasingly more resources and this is a positive of all the stuff that's happening with COVID-19 is that I feel like more and more people are going to be putting out adaptable music for band because I have a feeling that a lot of us won't be able to have large ensemble rehearsals anymore, especially with a band like mine. I'm supposed to have 65 seventh and eighth graders next year. So that's not going to (laughs) happen. No, I would think probably not. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that the idea of adaptable music is going to become more of a forefront this year. But yeah, I do agree. Like we will struggle a lot with only having an ensemble of 11 or 12, just mixed grab bag of instrumentalists. So that's a huge equity issue in and of itself because you cannot do these competitions and these things and solo and ensemble and those things with only like 11 kids. And I, I think our music profession and our band profession as a whole really, again, is only catering to those stereotypical ensembles. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. And this is something that's come up in the, um, at the Connecticut Music Educators Association's conference every year, which couldn't happen this year. But in the past, there have been talks about equity and accessibility and how people are noticing that the bands that get selected for performing at these uh, conferences and festivals, they have money, they have resources, they have just, they have that wealth of not just money, but of time and of knowledge and, and their students take private lessons and, you know, yes, I'm sure they play wonderfully, but who are you representing and what are you saying when you're only, you know, I'm picturing like a sieve where so many schools that have fewer resources are just falling to the bottom. And once they're there, where's the opportunity to pull them out? Yeah. And I don't know what your state manual is like, but I've done some research on New York state manual and pretty much all of the composers that are featured in the large ensemble section, which a lot of new teachers rely on when it comes to selecting repertoire, Mm -hmm. pretty much 99% of those composers are white men. Yep. Um, only five female composers are in that section of the manual. And yeah. I'm sure there's even smaller percentage of people of color. And so I think that even that is not very equitable from the beginning, just selecting the repertoire that you would take to a festival like that, because I don't know how it works in Connecticut, but in New York, you have to select repertoire from that manual in order to go to state conference. And I've, I've never been, so I haven't, I haven't looked, but um just thinking back to the music library that I inherited when I started working there and the library I'm trying to build, definitely trying to get more women and people of color Mm -hmm. into, into that, into that library and making sure that the students have read the, like the, the, you know, the inside of the score there, who is this person? What do they do? What is this piece about having that diversity? And I'm so tired of the whole, well, we should be picking music that's good. It shouldn't matter. You know, if it's good, that's the only criteria. Mm-hmm. No, no, because- A colleague of mine actually said that the other day. He said, well, 
well, the music that's by these other composers, he said other, he literally other, these other composers isn't good. And I'm like, um, what makes it good? Yeah. Wow. Your opinion or (laughs) the fact that it hasn't been put in a manual yet because, um, I did some research again, I'm going to bash New York state's manual because that's what I know. (laughs) Went online and looked at who's on the manual committee for, for NISMA and it's a bunch of white men. Yeah. So and you're really telling me that out of all the people and all the centuries of, of you know, programming music, really, really? <laughs> yeah, right. And it's so, it's so dumb to me because people also say, oh, well, well, they're not writing as much music. And I said, you know, they are writing the music. It's just not being played. And that's mm-hmm. the problem. And yeah. what you brought up that point about inheriting your library, I had the same exact issue. I went and went through my library and I did not find a single piece by a female composer or a composer of color. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here like, I have people of color in my ensembles. I have more women in my ensembles than men. So what am I demonstrating to my students when I keep picking music from the same population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm doing them a disservice. Yeah. And when I think back to my high school experience, what pieces we did, it was all stuff from the canon. I mean, it was John Williams and it was Holst um, and Alfred Reed and, and it was all canonical work. And part of that is, is what kept me going with clarinet. But also, I mean, you, you can't just ignore that. I mean, you're, you're not just erasing the fact that, oh, behind this piece of music was this great process. You're also saying, and these are the only people who write, and these are the only people worthy of playing over and over and over again. Yeah. And a lot of people try to use the argument like, oh, well, I picked these things to prepare my students for music school. Well, I have like no kids go to school for music, which I'm fine with. I'm not going to push a kid to do something that they don't want to do, obviously. Mm-hmm. So if, if I'm in a population like that, I don't feel the need to keep pushing the stereotypical music over and over again, because if they're not going to pursue music, then why am I not just picking an eclectic amount of repertoire? Also, right. if we want to change the way things are done, we need to start at K-12. So the argument that, oh, well, we're preparing our kids for music school well, why aren't you educating your kids on diverse repertoire? So when they get to music school, they are challenging what repertoire is picked at the collegiate level as well, saying, hey, why are we all playing music by white men? What is going on here? When I was in school, we didn't do that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It definitely starts K-12. Yep. What you're exposed to when you're young. I mean, just even now when I think of when I, the word composer, I have a very specific image in my mind. And I want to change that. But, you, you know, you picture these white men in wigs and even the word, <laughs> the, even the word composer. Like sometimes I think, you know, is there, a, is there another word that maybe is less antiquated? I mean, I, I don't even yeah. quite know what I'm trying to say, but like, is there another word that fits what I'm doing better? I mean, there's a lot of traditional weight behind that word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it sounds so, it sounds so elite too. And I mean, there's something like mystical about like, oh, she's a composer. Wow. She writes music. But yeah, there, there's that, there's that weight behind it. So I'm still using, yeah, I am a composer, but sometimes I I grapple with that word. Um, Yeah. I I don't want to like distance myself from, you know, current issues and things like that, but 
Yeah, and that all circles back to the language piece that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, the impact of the language that you use with your students and the classical tradition, I say in quotations, because Mm -hmm. it's outdated. Let's be frank, it is. And one thing that you also highlighted when you were talking about your job is illuminating the process behind the product. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so beautiful because I do agree what our audiences see when they come to a concert is that product. And we're always pushing the concert, the concert, the concert on the kids. And we're not taking a step back and really focusing on the musical process, the rehearsal, the concepts the kids are learning. It's all about this elitist attitude of just pushing the concert over and over again. And I just want to say, I completely agree with you on that point. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like teaching to the test in a way you teach what's on the test, you teach what's on the test, but there's so much more that, either should be happening or is happening that doesn't fit nicely in a concert setting because it's not, it's not necessarily something that you would put on display for people to watch. And it's, it's kind of too bad because like just the process of, of composing is it's so some of the compositional manipulatives that I use in my class, or like I said, those Easter eggs that come apart where you can mix and match different note values and note names we do in third grade. We do a lot of, I guess we do a lot of writing with, um, I use pom-poms a lot. So by color, by size, by height, students sort of can play each other's compositions without needing to read anything necessarily. They look at the height of the pom-pom or the, the shape of it. If it's big, it's louder. We do a lot of glyphs in chorus. We, we draw our own, we put them up on the board, we sing and we guess. So just that process but I can't put that in a concert. I can't just say, all right, and now we will write a glyph and sing it for you. So I really try to make it clear through, we use the app or the program Seesaw, which it's kind of, it's like a a student posting app and parents get notified when their students have either, their children have either posted or been tagged in a piece of work. And it can be a worksheet or a video or a recording. So I post a lot of audio recordings on there and I tag my band students so that parents and teachers can hear what's going on and see pictures of what's going on in class. And we don't just see the concert, you know, the twice a year concerts as, okay, so this is what you've been doing the whole time. You've just been singing. You've just been playing instruments. No, there's more, but you're just not here to see it. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's awesome that you're doing all those things and you're being so creative in your classroom. And I think when we have all these accessibility with technology and that sort of thing and especially with younger teachers who I feel like are you know more acclimated to using technology I think it would be so cool to just start even just filming some of the lessons that you're doing and posting them on some sort of if you have a website for your classroom or whatever so parents can really see what you're doing and how creative you are being in the classroom and what music class really is about so the more that we can educate even those people, not even just our students, but our surrounding communities, I think the greater appreciation people will have for what's going on in the music classroom. Yeah. And seizing on opportunities like that, where you can share things digitally or through apps, or even if you can, I've never done this, but at some point, you know, volunteering to perform at a board of ed meeting or learning the Star Spangled Banner is always a, a big learning curve from going from sixth grade into seventh grade. So I think in the future, I, I, I might just have the students who are, who want to do it and are super comfortable with it, performing that at any school function, right? Just right at the beginning, because then it, it's not pressure on everybody because we really only need it, I guess you could say at Memorial Day. 
but some students just learn it and they know it inside out. So getting those students, you know, that trio to perform, I mean, there's your healthy risk taking, there's that vulnerability and, and, and look at what these students accomplished and you're giving them this great opportunity to be proud of themselves in a healthy way that has this great communal effect too. And I think even with the concert, I think it would be really cool if beginning band teachers, even just the first concert that you do of the year, just highlighting the process of the band rehearsal. Like you don't even need to necessarily say, now we do this and now we do this, but even just openly talking with parents in between pieces or whatever about what band looks like for a beginning band student and what you do in a rehearsal. So they're getting a little more educated about what the class is like. And Mm -hmm. I think that would be an awesome way to just streamline things as a district and as a music department. So from the get-go, parents are understanding and having a great appreciation for what we're doing, even in an ensemble sort of situation. Yeah, sort of like the idea of an informants where you inform the audience as well as perform for them. You illuminate what's happening, you know, how, how we went about learning this and what the challenges were. And I like to try to give students those speaking opportunities too, because they're the ones that, you know, the parents are there to see. Yeah. Just making sure that, that you take all the opportunities you can to educate and inform. And it's not like I can, I can get so upset in my head about, oh, I'm treated this way. My program is treated this way. Look at the way that you know, all these, all these negative things can be happening to arts programs around the country, but really it's about shifting that to, I'm going to educate and inform my community and my, my, the parents and my administration, because I think that's just, that's just the healthier approach. I mean, mental health wise for me, but just that's the way to, to build understanding. It's not coming from it from an angry point of view, which a lot of times my mind can, can convert to. Yeah. And I, I think you you made a great point about outreaching and keeping that communication up with your, your school administration so they understand exactly what you're doing in the classroom because I think it's hard for people that are, you know, music teachers or art teachers or those things to, if you have administration that were never really involved in those programs growing up or don't really have a great recollection of those programs to understand what you're doing in the classroom, that this isn't just, oh, fun time. There's academic things being taught. There are skills being taught. And so, for example, my school, we do a music fundraiser in the fall of every year. It's a coffee house fundraiser. So we have kids come in and it's kind of like a talent show sort of vibe, but it's very like music based. But we don't just require, we just don't just have music kids in the department come in and perform it's anybody in the school and we sell tickets to raise money for our our program and we really encourage all the principals to come and our head principal comes every year and he's super in support of everything that's going on so even things like that that can involve other students that may not necessarily be involved in the music program and their parents I think that's even branching a bigger awareness and really yeah. encouraging your administration to come and participate and maybe even doing uh, do a greeting before the concert to introduce your ensembles, things like that, just to get them involved more is a right. great way to keep that awareness up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And it would be so much easier with a cohort. It's me and the pre-K through two music teacher, you know, we're the music teachers in the building, but then, um, you know, I have my colleagues in the five other elementary schools in our region, 
but we're, you know, we're physically distanced and we're at different schools yeah. and doing different jobs. So the, the few times that we see each other during the year, it's really, we're, we're sharing all these ideas and seeing how we can, how we can build a stronger program and more awareness. But yeah, being the main music teacher is, it's tough because I have a quiet voice, literally and figuratively. I'm one person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Sarah, I guess my final question for you is what advice would you give? Because I know you were talking about a little bit about your struggles in your job. What advice would you get someone who is brand new music teacher coming into a district that's very similar to yours. So very rural school district where they have a lot of jobs that they have to be, you know, on their toes and really flexible with their responsibilities. So what advice would you give someone who is just walking into your position now that you have a few years under your belt? The first thing I would do, so let's say this person, you know, is, is interviewing still, I would say, really think about some very pointed questions you can ask the, the team when you're interviewing, because yes, they're interviewing you, but you're also trying to see if this school district is a good fit for you. So if you think about the values you have or the kind of program you want to build, what are some questions that you can ask them about their school and their program that can illuminate a little more about, about what's going on currently at the school? I had, I had no idea really what to ask because it was in a district that I, you know, I didn't go to part of the state that I was not super familiar with. I I didn't know what to ask. I mean, I didn't even think about asking, does band have its own spot in the schedule? Because no, it didn't. And I didn't even think about asking that, but making sure that your questions like sort of elucidate your values. And so you can get to know a little more about that school district. I would also not be afraid to share some ideas with, with those interviewers about well, here's a kind of program that I'd be interested in building. How do you see that fitting in here? Um, but for this, the teacher who maybe has the job and is coming into a new school district, I would say joy. If you can infuse joy into your teaching, and that can be hard, especially with what's going on in the world today, but not being afraid to divert from the music lesson and the objective to really get to know your students, to build strong relationships, spread happiness and to find joy within yourself. I think prioritizing those relationships and not being not being too down on yourself if I didn't get to my objective fully today or I didn't, you know, in two classes, we still haven't learned the song yet. There's time. And I think those relationships and associating music with a place that you that students want to be where they're valued and heard and their opinions matter recognizing everybody in the room encouraging everybody i think that's probably more important than meeting that objective so being open to to that to building those strong relationships and really focusing on that is is really important yeah it's great i love that Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciated talking to you today and hearing your story. And I think we delved into a lot of issues with regards to equity and making things accessible for all students. Yeah, this was great, Cassidy. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful.